Hard Rains and Slow Trains Shalom! Thank you for joining us for this Sunday sermon of July 19, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. On the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, Rev. David Pelegi teaches that Jesus told the parable of the wheat and tares to explain why there is opposition to his message and movement that centers on the kingdom of heaven. Still, the parable does much more than give a reason for unbelief as it challenges and yet encourages believers in numerous ways that should deepen our discipleship. A hard rain's a gonna fall, but to mix two well-known song titles, it thankfully is a slow train coming. Are you blessed by our teaching audio? Are you joining us virtually on Facebook or YouTube? We're so glad to have you walking through these difficult days with us. Let us know you are watching or listening by sending us a message on Facebook or by making a donation to the church, the Mercy Fund, or other projects listed on our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thanks. Now, on to the lectionary reading. Tonight we'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, starting with verse 24 through 30. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And now verses 36 to 43. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words from my lips and the meditation of my heart, Lord, will bring glory to you and honor your Son, Jesus the Messiah. Pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would not only bring us blessing and encouragement, 
but you would challenge us as well so that indeed we may live lives that please you and that we may live lives that glorify and honor you for all that you are doing for us. Again, in and through your Son, Jesus the Messiah. We ask these things. Amen. We have another parable. And uh, we have a summer of parables. And a summer and those passages in Matthew, which we have Jesus teaching on the kingdom of heaven and Jesus teaching on discipleship. They go together. Discipleship and the kingdom of heaven, they are, you might say, they're kissing cousins. Sometimes we struggle to find what the relationship might be, but I think when we do struggle, it's perhaps because we don't uh, have the fullest or perhaps even the best understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, Jesus, the central message of Jesus, one of the one of his uh, most, you might say, important, most important um, message or his teaching is, of course, on the kingdom of God or on the kingdom of heaven. And uh, it is throughout the pages of the Gospels, especially the first three Gospels, but in an, uh, indirectly in the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John as well, Jesus, yes, will preach or announce the, the good news of the kingdom of heaven or the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus will teach and he will explain uh, the kingdom of God. Jesus will illustrate the kingdom of God with parables and Jesus will demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like with healings and deliverance and miracles. Jesus is a preacher of the kingdom. He's coming to reveal, yes, fully what uh, the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's not that Jews of his day would have found the concept foreign They certainly understood something about the kingdom of heaven, but the way that Jesus understands it and the way that he centers it around his person uh, certainly would have been new and would have been perhaps uh, uh, maybe radical or even a bit hard to understand. And one of the ways that Jesus is gonna get the point across is that he's gonna tell his stories. He's going, to tell, he's going to tell parables. And these parables are going to uh, say something about the king, about God himself, yes, and the son of man. And it's gonna tell us something about the way that we should respond. And of course, oftentimes Jesus will tell a parable in answer to a question. And we don't always have, or we don't always know what those questions are. Uh, maybe. But I can imagine that the parable of the sower, which we discussed last week, uh, and even this parable that we have, the wheat and the tares, there may have been a question asked about Jesus. So maybe from the disciples, maybe from someone in the crowd. 
And the question may have gone like this. If this is such good news, yes, if this is so liberating and so uh, new and so radical, and this is what all of Israel has been waiting for, why aren't more people accepting this message? Perhaps first Jews and then later Gentiles. Man, this is so wonderful. Why don't we have everybody rushing somehow to, to get into this movement, you know, to, uh, to follow Jesus as, as, as uh, he is teaching? And in the parable of the sower and the seed, which Jesus says is a parable about the kingdom, we not only learn that there's conflict, uh, that the kingdom, it, while on one hand, is growing and advancing, there's also conflict, but we also learn that there is human choice. And Jesus pretty much tells us in, the, in last week's parable that there are four types of listeners. And uh, these four types of, uh, three of the four types of listeners ultimately are for one reason or another, yes, the seed that was sown is not going to bear fruit in their lives. And so there's an element of human responsibility. But now we come to the place in this particular parable where there's not human responsibility, but the one who's causing unbelief, the one who is bringing deception, you might say, is Satan himself. And so we have human beings, and of course we have, we have the devil. And this combination reminds me, um, certainly reminds me of, what, of the story that we have in the garden. Because in the garden, we had the serpent, which we later understand to be the devil or to be Satan. But in the text itself, I'm not sure that this serpent uh, actually is Satan. I believe that in Genesis, it's some kind of a dragon, some kind of a chaos monster, some type of Leviathan. It doesn't matter. But this serpent comes to Eve. It begins to question God. And it doesn't take a lot of convincing, yes? Because while the serpent questions God uh, on one point, Eve justifies herself with a number of other points as to why she should eat the forbidden fruit. There's an old uh, Jewish story uh, about an evil spirit who goes before the Lord, before God uh, Almighty. And he says to the Lord, he says, listen, you've sent me down to earth and I'm bored. And God said, well, you're supposed to be testing human beings. He says, I can't even get a word out of my mouth. I don't even have, uh, uh, I can't even fully tempt somebody before these, the, the, these uh, creatures of yours, you know, have already gone off in sin. So it doesn't take a lot of demonic deception uh, for, us, uh, for us to sin. And so this question really 
uh, about the, the good news of the kingdom of heaven actually can be asked of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had it perfect. It was very idyllic. It was a wonderful setup that they had. And yet, there was something within them, yes, some doubt, some lack of faith that said, you know, there must be something more. God must be holding back on us. God uh, doesn't really want us to, to have something. And so, of course, that they disobey and we're still living with the consequences to this day. So Jesus wants to give an explanation that although the kingdom of heaven is advancing, although there is fruit, uh, and, and in some cases incredible fruit, there is still opposition. That opposition is human. That opposition is uh, demonic. So, very good. But how does that speak to us? How does it challenge us? Because all uh, of these parables, even if they're about events that might happen in the future, should indeed challenge us, should indeed determine how we live our lives, how we follow Jesus. And so the first thing I'd like to just um, perhaps point out uh, is that the parable is a reminder a very important reminder uh, to some of us who always think that the kingdom of heaven is something coming in the future. This is about an event that's happening now. This is not about some, uh, some future event. It's something that's occurring in the present. And we know that the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. It, the kingdom of heaven is that place where Jesus is ruling and reigning redeeming the lives of uh, people. Uh, and we know it's also the place where he's creating a community of people who call him king. So that's our first reality. But our second, our, our first challenge is to think in terms of the kingdom. So often we as Christians um, think about the kingdom of heaven as something that's going to happen to us when we get uh, into the sweet by and by after we die. Again, the focus of Jesus, the overwhelming focus of Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. But you might say, well, what about being born again? I thought that was the most important thing. We must be born again, Jesus says in John 3, 16. My dear friends, the reason we're born again is to see the kingdom of heaven. We have a new birth, yes, to, to see that spiritual reality to see that place where God, where God, through Jesus, his son, yes, is uh, working and uh, changing and transforming people's lives. So I suppose our first challenge, I don't suppose our first challenge is to remember that this is a present reality and to understand the kingdom, yes, as not something that Jesus talked about that doesn't really have anything to do with us. But it, for, for, that, for that reality, what Jesus taught to be for, uh, front and central in our lives as well. I think the second thing that uh, I hope will be um, challenging to us, yes, and the way that we live, uh, our, live out our discipleship is the following. Is the parable that we read is a parable uh, about 
on one hand, it's a parable about judgment. It's also a parable about mercy. Now, we don't like judgment anymore, especially in the 20th century with uh, the, 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 um, the line in the creed, you know, that uh, Jesus will, will come to judge the living and the dead. That sounds, not that sounds very uh, unecumenical. And perhaps after the 20th century, after wars and holocaust and many horrible events that happened in the last century, people wanted to retire the idea of judgment. Uh, people found it offensive, and many Christians, yes, kind of sensing the, uh, the spirit of the age, just began to emphasize uh, God's love, uh, God's acceptance, uh, God's grace, so, <clears throat> so on and so forth. In fact, many Christians will say, oh yeah, it's all about grace. You know, you know I'm, not, yes, I'm not going to be judged. I don't have to worry. I'm not, I'm not gonna have to give an account. You know, I've been forgiven in Christ. Whether we have accepted the, the forgiveness of Jesus or whether we have not, all of us will be held to an account. All of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yes, and explain ourselves yeah, to the Son of God. And it used to it certainly, uh, again, has become very unpopular. And if we read these words about fire and about the weeds being, or the, or the false wheat being cut down and thrown into the fire, it's, uh, again, we might find it disturbing. But here is our challenge. The challenge is, is that we serve a God who does indeed love us, a God who's merciful, a God who cares about us, a God who's a very good heavenly father, and at the same time we serve a God who will not wink at sin. We serve a God who's holy. We serve a God who has uh, high standards. And that's a paradox, you might say. That's a tension that we have to live with. We, by the way, we have to live with a lot of tension, and we have to live with a lot of paradox. We have to live with a paradox that Jesus is a lamb and yet Jesus is a lion. And we have to live with a paradox that God comes looking for us and we go looking for God. We choose God and God chooses us. And sometimes we can't always necessarily figure these things out. And it's not just about doctrine, it's actually about the way that we live every day. For example, the Bible teaches us, the way of Jesus teaches us, that to live, okay, or let's put it the other way, that in death we have life. What does that mean? You die and then you live? How does that work? Or to be forgiven, to get forgiveness, we need to forgive. To receive mercy, we need to give mercy. In order to get, we need to give. There's a contradiction in all of this, seemingly. There's a tension. And here's the danger, and again, the challenge. The minute we talk about the love of God, the love of God, the love of God, and we forget that all through the scripture, that God 
yes, is a God of holiness, is a God who hates sin, who ultimately will call the sin of the nations and the sin of the, ch- the church into account. The minute that we forget that, the minute that we distort okay, the character of God, we end up um, in falsehood. And not only do we end up believing something that's false or something believing that something believing something that is not true, we end up, yes, not doing the truth. We end up in a place, yes, where our lives and the way that we follow Jesus will be distorted. If we, by the way, say God is only a God of judgment and he's a God of fire and he's angry and we have no love and no compassion and no mercy, then that's also a distortion. So we must, again, live we must live with this. Uh, we must live with this tension. And sometimes we want things to always be black and white, and sometimes we want things to be simple. And that's not, you know, necessarily always the case. I think the second thing that um, I would um, like to, the way that uh, this certainly. Uh, challenges us. And here I mentioned that this parable is a parable about grace and it's a parable about mercy. Now, people may say, well, wait a minute, isn't it a parable about um, fire and judgment and, and so on? You know, when Jesus, Jesus was alive, yes, there were some people, as there are today, they were suffering oppression and they wanted judgment. For example, John the Baptist, he understood that the world is wicked, that uh, there's an enormous amount of sin and corruption. There's an, um, you know, it's not getting any better. So John comes, you know, expecting judgment. That's the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. Judgment, judgment, judgment. That many of the disciples of Jesus want judgment. Usually, by the way, when, when we meet people, sometimes including ourselves, when we want God to judge, it's usually we want God to judge somebody else. We don't really ask God to judge us or to hold us to account or to examine us. We want it to happen to somebody else. And of course, Jesus, because, again, of his mercy, he says no to John, no to the disciples, uh, even no to us. That big judgment that big judgment is delayed. And the reason that the judgment is delayed or it's put on hold is so that uh, folks will have chan- a chance to repent. Yes? So that uh, those who are perishing yes, may not actually perish. But they may hear the good news ultimately. Yes, repent, change their lives Yes, and become followers of Jesus. So this is a time of mercy and it's a time of grace. I think there's something really important. In this parable, the judgment that Jesus talks about, it's the big judgment. In the meantime, there are smaller judgments that happen. Yes, Jesus, for example, comes to Jerusalem. He can see that Jerusalem, uh, on his last week of his life, Jerusalem is going 
in the wrong direction. It will lead to disaster. And so what does Jesus do? He weeps over the city. He weeps over the city, but he understands, yes, that there will be, that there will be judgment. And so, my dear friends, it's the same 2000, it's the same today, not only 2,000 years ago. Yes, we smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. We'll die of lung cancer, most likely. 99% chance. Yes, if we abort tens of thousands of babies every day all around the world, yes, we will suffer the, we will reap the consequences. Those consequences is that human life will become cheap. And it will be easier and easier for us to become more callous. And life will become less sacred. And we can see that happening, yes, in many countries. Or there, there are many examples. We have uh, the plague of pornography. We can see the, the devastation that it's bringing to, to our society. And so God will oftentimes, not always, he lets us reap what we sow. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, don't be mocked. Galatians chapter 6, don't be mocked. God, you know, we will reap what we sow. It doesn't always happen because sometimes God is gracious whether it's in the life of a family or the life of a nation or a life of an individual. But still, we need to remember that sin has consequences. That sin has consequences. And I think a third challenge that it hopefully brings to us is as follows. That challenge um, is that when we read this parable, when we read that the wheat and the tares are so similar and virtually you can't tell them apart. How do you tell them apart at the end? It's because the tares or the weeds don't produce fruit or they don't produce anything that's edible. But it's only at the end that, you, uh, that one can tell the difference. Now so for many of us, for, uh, and this was true even in the days of Jesus, we are oftentimes convinced, you know, we oftentimes draw boundaries and we say, we are in and some of our friends or some of our associates are somehow in the boat, that we are in God's grace, we are saved, whatever language we want to use, and those other people out there are not. Can we be so certain? Yes, as to who's in and who's out? And people say, well, those Roman Catholics, none of them are going to heaven. They're all going to, you know, some bad place, you know, because of their theology. Can we be so sure about that? And what about when God does a work and when God does a movement and when there's a revival? And here, I think the principle is the same because God will move in the lives of people. And at the same time, in the midst of a revival, in the midst of God bringing renewal and changing lots of lives, there'll be a lot of nonsense going on and it'll be the work of the devil. And it'll be very easy to condemn, for example, all of the charismatic movement. All those charismatics, 
It's all evil. It's not scriptural. There's so much abuse, and it's true. There's a lot of abuse. You know, there's a lot of bad teaching. But at the same time, yes, God is at work. It's a field. It's a field of wheat. It's a field of tares. And so I think, therefore, we need to be very careful. I'm not saying, suggesting that we tolerate false teaching. I'm not suggesting that we tolerate evil or tolerate sin. But for those who believe they have the ministry of purifying the church, uh, who will always act as, you know, doctrine, police, whatever, I would hope, yes, that uh, we would be very careful, very cautious, and that even if we're going to call sin, sin, it's done with love. I think the other thing, I hope the other thing that it should, uh, this parable should re- remind us of, or uh, what it should challenge us, is not to give up, not to become discouraged in the face of evil. Yes, not to become discouraged in the face of wickedness. Again, it's very easy to look around, like John the Baptist did a long time ago. Very easy to look around and think, you know, the bad guys, they always get away with it. Look at all the corruption in the world. Yes, look at how people are cheating. Look at uh, how, un- how much unfaithfulness there uh, is, for example, in marriage. How many people don't pay their taxes? Whatever it may be. Look at the, how, how much murder and genocide there is, there is in the world and there has been in the past. Why weren't these people held to account? Look what happened in the former Soviet Union. Millions of people were enslaved. Millions of people were, were, were starved to death. Hundreds of thousands were executed. You know, where is God's justice? Why weren't these people, you know, the NKBD, you know, and Stalin and all, and Lenin and all these centuries, why weren't they called to account? Why didn't they go to prison? Yes, evil is everywhere, and it's very, very easy to be discouraged. Very easy to be discouraged. What this parable teaches us is not why evils exist, but only that evil will exist for, for a limited time. That God ultimately will be victorious and that ultimately he will be a judge. And if it's not in this lifetime that we're held to account, we will be held to account in the next life. Probably for many of us, it'll be uh, in both. This life and in the life to come. I think that helps us. And finally, I think the, other, the, the last challenge is to look, what, what, actually are, what actually do the angels kind of, which are, what do the tares really represent? Yes, and in Matthew 13 it's very instructive. I think it can warn us, uh, certainly warn us as believers. It says the following. Um, let's make sure we have the, uh, it says that um, they will weed, uh, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. 
What is everything that causes sin? Literally, the Greek word there is from the word scandal. And this word, um, this idea means, uh, scandal means to cause someone else to stumble. Yes, to uh, trick somebody or to somehow morally trip uh, somebody, to lead someone into sin, to take someone away from their allegiance to Jesus, to make uh, someone doubt or even have less faith. And uh, another place in Matthew, um, certainly in Matthew chapter 18, you may remember that the same word is used, uh, and this word is used, right, this idea of stumbling, okay, or causing someone to be stuck or to, to sin, is used in the following way. It says, but, anyone, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me, okay, so here Jesus is talking uh, about our relationship with uh, other believers. So if we cause one of these other believers um, to sin, it would be better to have a large millstone hung around his neck and drowned and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Yes. Jesus is a sin fearer. And uh, this, this causing another to stumble has dangerous consequences. But he goes on, and again, and he makes it personal. Yes, he says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into, two, and into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire. Now, obviously Jesus didn't mean this literally, although a few people down through the centuries have taken it literally. Yes, this is a metaphor. But what Jesus is saying is that, yes, if something is causing us to stumble, be radical. Yes, if our computer is causing us to sin, then be radical enough to get rid of the computer because sin is so much more dangerous than not having a computer. Yes, if it's our career that's causing us to sin, then, and even if that career is lucrative, then get a new career, get a new job. Yes, if it's our golf game is causing us to sin, stop playing golf, whatever it may be. Yes, and so this is what the angels will come and, you know, this is what they're going to weed out. And then it says the second, um, our second to... Matthew 13, the angels come and they take out everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Literally in the Greek, all who practice lawlessness. All who practice lawlessness. Now, again, Jesus has a warning. Again, for those who will not, as believers, submit themselves to, his, to, to him and his commandments. 
Yes, many of us who think, I'm under grace, it really doesn't matter. Because after all, God's gonna forgive me and I'm going to heaven. And besides, things are going so well for me. You know, God is blessing me so much and he's blessing my ministry. How could there be anything wrong? First, can I say that when things are going really, really well for us, we should ask the question, is God being good to us, yes, in order to bring us to a place of repentance? Because the goodness of God leads to repentance. And it doesn't mean that just because we're being blessed and things are going along swimmingly, that uh, in actual fact, God is pleased with us. You may remember the passage in Matthew chapter seven, uh, a very, very powerful and even scary passage. And in Matthew seven, it says, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, not everyone's gonna enter this movement. Not everyone's gonna enter this place where I'm ruling and reigning, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Yes, how do we know God's will? God's will is in his commandments and the commandments that uh, are lived out and taught by Jesus of Nazareth, okay? And it says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Lord, so many people are coming to Christ through me and I have a wonderful prayer ministry and I have a great Bible study and I'm giving so many millions of dollars to foreign missions. Yes, and what does Jesus say? Depart from me, I never knew you, you doers of lawlessness. Doers of lawlessness. Those who are not following, yeah, the Torah, Yeshua, the, you know, the, the way of living, yes, of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. So it's that lawlessness, yes, it's that, it really I think it's maybe a way of putting it lawlessness and causing other people to stumble. It's, it's that not taking sin seriously, not taking the damage that sin causes to us and to other people seriously. And for that, we all will have to give an account. But we can see really here in this gospel how Jesus, you know, highlights these things. The danger of sin, the destructiveness of sin, yes, and ultimately that each one of us will have to give an account. I think these are the cha- some of just a few of the challenges that come uh, from this, you know, from this particular uh, passage. We need to be reminded of God's holiness, His goodness. What does it mean for for God to be holy and for even Jesus to be holy? Holiness is God's power. It's this standard of righteousness. Yes, that uh, we as certainly as mortals. Uh, cannot understand, yes, and at the same time, at the same time, holiness is God's goodness. It's his mercy, his love, his compassion. We need to live, yes, 
uh, in that tension. Uh, and as we live in that tension, and evil does surround us, we need, again, let me just close uh, with the words of the Apostle Paul uh, from the book of Galatians, because I think it, it, uh, it certainly helps us. And this is Galatians chapter six. Paul says the following. He says, um, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that sinful nature, nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.